For our text this morning, we have two passages of Scripture. And so, first of all, I'd have you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. But also, if you would, uh, just hold your place, too, at Luke, chapter 3, starting at verse 23. We'll read both texts in their entirety together, and we'll begin there at Matthew 1. Hear once again the word of our God. The bulk of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares, and Zerah of Tamar. And Phares begat Eastram, and Eastram begat Aram, and Aram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Naasim. And Naasim begat Solomon, and Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. And Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Ahaz, and Ahaz begat Ezekias. And Ezekias begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Selethiel, and Selethiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Asor, and Asor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud. And Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And then turn with me, if you would, holding your place in Matthew's Gospel to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we begin there at verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Matha, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Jana, and which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Matthias, and which was the son of Amos, which was the son of Nahum, which was the son of Islam, which was the son of Nega, which was the son of Math, which was the son of Matthias, which was the son of Shemai, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joanna, which was the son of Resa, which was the son of Zerubbabel, which was the son of Selethiel, which was the son of Neri, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Adai, which was the son of Kosan, which was the son of Elmadon, which was the son of Er, which was the son of Jose, which was the son of Eleazar, and which was the son of Joram, which was the son of Mathat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Simeon, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Jonah, which was the son of Eliakim, which was the son of Mela, which was the son of Menon, which was the son of Matha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David, 
which was the son of Jesse, which was the son of Obed, which was the son of Boaz, which was the son of Salmon, which was the son of Nassim, which was the son of Aminadab, which was the son of Aram, which was the son of Esram, which was the son of Pharaoh, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham, which was the son of Terah, which was the son of Nahor, which was the son of Sarek, which was the son of Ragu, which was the son of Phalek, which was the son of Heber, which was the son of Salem, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Arphaxad, which was the son of Shem, which was the son of Noah, which was the son of Lamech, which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch, which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Malaliel, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Amen. May the Lord add to us this morning the blessing from his word. We read both of those texts in their entirety, and you may wonder why. Well, friend, the reason why is very simple. The gospel writers are presenting to us the Christ of history. We come not to a theory, we come not to an idea, but the gospel writers put us squarely before the face of one who really walked on the earth. 2,028 years ago, the gospel writers say in unison, the person of the Son of God walked among men. And friend, the histories that we have set before us this morning attest to that very simple fact. Now we come, of course, in our time as we're looking at the harmony of the gospel writers telling us about this one Christ, the Christ of history. And we come to this text understanding, first of all, friend, that the gospel writers are very clear. In order for us to understand Christ, really, we do need to know something of his past. We need to know something of his human descent. And so in order for us to understand the verifiable historical claims of the evangelists and of the apostles, we come to these texts, texts that are so rarely taken up and so seldom appreciated. I want us to first of all, friend, look at the text that we read first, that from Matthew's Gospel. I want you to notice as we look at this text that the apostle, that the, rather the, the gospel writer tells us in the first verse that this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The words there in the original mirror the very words that I read to you if you were with us this morning in our time in Genesis. The Biblios Genesis. You can detect the word from the Greek, the word from which we get the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 is the introduction to the book of Genesis. And what's striking is in our own gospel here, we're told here that the Lord God has given us the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a striking thing that John's gospel begins with the first words of the book of Genesis. Matthew's gospel begins with the title of the book of Genesis. We'll come back to that theme in just a moment. But really, this first verse describes not for us the first 17 verses of chapter 1. The first verse stands over the entirety of Matthew's Gospel. He's presenting to us the history of the Son of God, who is Son of David, Son of Abraham. But as you look at Matthew's Gospel, you see that there is that emphasis, isn't there? 
He is presenting to us Christ as son of Abraham, as son of David. There's an emphasis even from there on the royal claims of Christ. We'll come back to that in just a moment's time. But note that at the beginning. This is a gospel that begins by asserting that this Christ, of whom Matthew writes, well, this Christ is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and is yet still Jesus Christ our Lord. But I also want you to notice, friend, here, that there is that emphasis, as I just said, on this royal line. Twice you have the phrase, David the king. You have it there in verse 6, and then also you have it again in verse 17. There is this emphasis on the kingship that belongs to this, this pedigree. What you have here, too, in verse 12, is actually a very clear emphasis that what Matthew is doing for us is not merely giving us biology. He's giving us a pedigree that is tied to royal succession. Why do I say that? If you look at verse 12, you notice this. That he tells us here that after they were brought from Babylon, Jeconias begat Selethiel. Well, if you compare that text with what you have in Jeremiah 32, there's a very simple statement that Jeconias was to be childless. He was not actually to produce an heir physically from himself. So what is Matthew telling us? Well, Matthew is telling us that the line has continued. Not that, not that Jeconias actually bore a child. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that Selethiel didn't come biologically from Jeconias. He came from Neary. The point of Matthew's gospel, then, is not to show us primarily biology. In fact, as we have in the 12th verse, it's not biology at all. His focus is on the kingly line. His focus is on the royal succession. Christ, as he is king, is Matthew's primary focus. And as you come to verse 17, that becomes all the clearer. Again, as you read there, it says here, So the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. What you have in this division are a few interesting themes. Uh, First of all, if you count up the names between these epochs, the calling of Abraham, the enthronement of David, the exile and return, you actually have far more than 14 generations in some cases, and sometimes far less. So what is Matthew doing for us here? My friend, it's a very simple theme. But Matthew is giving to us a story, an account of how the Lord God has preserved his people through the major epics of the Old Covenant. The calling of Abraham to the kingship of David. The zenith there. And then, of course, from the kingship of David down to the birth of Christ. The decline. But yet, nevertheless, a preserved line. In one sense, friend, you have the gospel writer showing us and focusing very intently on the fact that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is also within the royal line without any interruption Without any, without any diminution. I want you to notice, friend, too, that just briefly, Matthew's Gospel is not giving us a full account either of all of the kings of Israel in the past. If you're comparing this with the Old Testament, you'll find Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah are missing from this list. What Matthew is doing, then, is he is emphasizing one very basic theme. He would have the people who are reading this Gospel see that his focus is on the kingship as it has been preserved without any diminution from its inception. 
Now that's Matthew's focus, of course, we now need to ask the question of Luke. The telos, the, the end of each genealogy is different. Matthew's purpose, he tells us in the first and in the 17th verse, is to take us back to Abraham, with an emphasis on taking us back to David. But just looking at Luke's gospel for a moment, the 38th verse tells us Luke's aim, to take us back to Adam, and then also to take us from Adam even back to God. Luke's gospel has 75 names attached to it. And what's obvious in the text as you read it is that he is giving us not a legal line of succession. He's giving to us a biological pedigree. He's telling us who has begat whom. Now, that shows us then that there are differences between these two lists. I don't want to stress this too much, but the two gospel writers do provide us two lists because they have two different names. I want you to notice that you can see this, first of all. Matthew's Gospel has 41 names attached to it. Luke's Gospel, 75. Matthew's Gospel very much goes chronologically. Luke's Gospel goes retrograde. He goes from Christ back to Adam instead of from Abraham to Christ as Matthew. There's very obviously a different emphasis in these two writers. We can't miss that. And we also can't miss the fact that in Luke's Gospel, you do have a biological line that ties us back to David, but not not through Solomon. As you read Luke 3, you'll find here that we get back to David through Nathan, whereas in Matthew's Gospel, we get back to David through Solomon. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And also, as you look at these two Gospel lists, you'll find that the latter portion, that post-exilic period, only two places do Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel agree, and that is with Silithiel and Zerubbabel. Every other name aside from those two in the post-exilic period are different. Two different genealogies. And we have to ask the question then, what's going on here? Well, first of all, there is no contradiction. Uh, when the gospel writers were writing at a time when the temple records were extant and actually quite easily accessible, uh, they were not making any mistakes here. Anyone could quickly refute any mistake that they might have made. And so it's absolutely unthinkable. Uh, that these men would be intentionally writing with error. But also, of course, we have the reality uh, that the pedigree that these two men have in view would be the most notoriously, most well-known pedigree uh, throughout the land. They were writing of the house of David. And the Gospels even show us that Joseph himself was well-known, even outside of Nazareth. Why? Because, of course, he was of the house and lineage of David. But more than that, friend, as we said before, These lists come to us from above, Luke tells us in Luke 1, verse 3. These are inspired lists, and we can't miss that. How do we reconcile these two? Well, most popularly, some would say that Matthew's Gospel gives us Joseph's lineage, and Luke's Gospel gives us Mary's. But throughout the history of the church, an older view has emerged, uh, with Calvin and others holding to it, that in fact, both lists give us Joseph's genealogy. They argue that because Mary's name isn't mentioned in Luke 3. But what's happening here is is that you have in Matthew's Gospel the legal line, Joseph's legal line, showing that of the house of David, Joseph himself, who would adopt Christ, we'll see that God willing next week, into his family, Joseph himself was not part of the house of Judah that had been cut off from the throne. In fact, Joseph was the only rightful heir to the throne. Though there were many of the house of David, 
who had been cut off from the line of succession. Joseph was not. And so what you have in Luke's Gospel then is the biology of Joseph in which Mary is somewhere subsumed. We know that Mary would be a descendant of the house of David biologically, but she would be subsumed somewhere in Luke 3. The focus being here, just this. That is that, in either case, in either case, the genealogies show that Christ was legally and biologically a son of David, a royal son of David. My friend, that seems rather tedious, and I'm called here to preach these texts, not to lecture through them, but it's important for us to know what we have before us. Now, having those things before us, it's important now to ask the question, what really is the point? What do these texts teach us? Well, first of all, as we said before, these genealogies are not codes. They're not ciphers. They're history. And so what they're teaching us here is that the claims of Christ, the claims of the apostles, the claims of the evangelists are all historical. And their historicity is verifiable. Friend, these genealogies attest to the fact that these things that are to become part and parcel of their gospel accounts are tied integrally to history. This is not metaphor. This is not allegory. This is historical fact. Historical fact is what the evangelists deal with. So that's our main focus. Our purpose here is not to do creative math. Neither is it to recast Old Testament history. Our purpose is to see that these things that the gospel writers are giving to us have actually been accomplished in time. We're given history. But I want you to notice too, friends, that these two genealogies have two focuses that we can't miss. Matthew's focus is clearly legal. And his focus is, of course, back to Abraham, but emphatically it's on David. The focus here is very much on that royal line. But when you come to Luke's Gospel, it's something very different. In Luke's Gospel, you have the focus turned to Adam. Not to, not to Abraham, not even to David, but to Adam, as you have it in Luke 3.38. Luke with Adam, and Matthew with the Abraham-David focus, look to the progenitors to whom it was promised that the Redeemer would be called a son according to the flesh. To Adam the seed was promised, that seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Abraham was promised that there would be a seed. And through that seed, the blessing would come upon the nations. And David was promised a son who would reign forevermore, to whom the kingship would belong for everlasting years. You see, friend, what the genealogies do then. As they focus on Adam, Abraham, and David, they focus on the three men in Scripture whom God had promised that through their line Christ would come. And so what is their main purpose? Oh, friend, it's just this, that these genealogies testify to the fact that Christ has come in verifiable historical fact according to the promise of God. And, of course, the influence that should have on our souls is to lead us to awe and to rejoice. Our theme then this morning is just this, that these genealogical accounts give us the truth. That the anticipated Christ has come. The anticipated Christ has come. And we'll see that under three headings. We'll see that first of all, as Christ comes as the promised seed. 
as the promised seed. And that takes us back to Luke's Gospel. As you read throughout the Gospel account, Luke's account specifically, friend, you notice that the writer there is focused primarily on the humanity of Christ. We saw that from the very first chapter. He says to Mary, the angel that is, Thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Again, the angel says to Mary, That holy thing which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and with men. Luke's emphasis is manifestly on the humanity of Christ. From its inception to this point where we come to the genealogical tables. Luke's interest is to present Christ to us as his man. And that's also why it's only Luke's gospel that gives us the account of Christ's life at age 12. He presents to us a Christ who is man. He focuses most clearly on the humanity of our Savior. And why is that? Well, friend, I think that in Luke 3, the genealogical table and its focus on Adam tells us why. You see, Adam here represents mankind, of course. But Adam, as we just said, was the one who was first promised that seed that would come to redeem. But I want to take you back just for a moment. Go back to the Garden of Eden after the fall. See the crisis as it's there. Man has sinned. He sinned and so he runs and he finds his fig leaves. He sows them together. And then he hears the voice of God. Moses tells us this. That they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That word cool there is, is not the word that you would expect to describe a tranquil evening. The word there is a rushing wind. And so the prophets talk about a wind of the Lord that shall come and become dry. It shall dry up all things. It shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant That The wind of the Lord spoils. Again, another prophet talks about the wind of judgment. It's the same word that's used in Genesis account. Now friend, many theologians were deduced from that then that in Genesis 3 what you have here is almost a foretaste of final judgment. The Lord seems to be coming in his wrath, in the cool or in the wind and rushing of the day. And there stands our first parents, in their fig leaves and trembling, at the presence of God. And friend, even if there wasn't a storm without, there was certainly a storm within. Conscience declared, you have sinned. Conscience has suggested again, once again... The Lord has promised, if you eat the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. These are the things that our first parents contemplated in that moment. And friend, I say that to you because first of all, we need to recognize that in one sense, we all stood there trembling in that moment. We all stood there trembling. We all stood there guilty. As the Apostle tells us, the offense of one judgment came upon all men. To condemnation. Friend, all the sons of Adam actually find themselves either on this side of the grave or on the other in that moment, trembling before a just and a holy God. What are they waiting for? God had promised judgment, and there were no fig leaves thick enough 
There were no trees tall enough. There were no shadows dark enough to really hide the fact that they had sinned against the holy God. Friend, you and I stand there as well. Justly condemned. And then of course you come. You come to the Lord's pronouncement. It's a striking thing when the Lord turns to the serpent. He says, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed. Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon upon thy belly shalt thou go in dust. Shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. He says this to the serpent. The Lord does. And you can imagine what our first parents were thinking. This surely is a crescendo of judgment. This is surely leading to a harsher pronouncement against ourselves. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But then, friend, the promise. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What was the promise? The apostle interprets the promise for us. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, that's Christ, likewise would take part of the same nature. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What the apostle is saying is here in this promise, in this moment whenever it seems only judgment is inevitable, God has promised that through Adam's line, a seed would come. And that seed would really destroy the works of the devil. Would really destroy sin and its consequences. And deliver his people. That's the promise in Genesis 3.15. That's what has been promised to our first father. And oh beloved, note how the apostle interprets that. This promise looks not only to Adam, but to all of those who were in bondage. Who like Adam were justly condemned. And so what do you find? Well, beloved, as you read throughout the Old Testament, you find this longing for the fulfillment of the promise. You see this manifest in their worship, the continuation of worship from Adam and on forward. You see this in their sacrifices. You see this in their use of the promises. It was always this longing that this son of Adam would come. And friend, what you have here then is a company of people longing to see the one who had been promised. Longing to see the one who had redeemed. The analogy breaks down slightly. But it's not entirely inappropriate. The forebears of the old covenant looked like slaves. Longing to be emancipated. Longing to see the one who held the key. Longing to see the one who would finally unlock their chains. Yes, they already enjoyed, of course, the benefits of Christ beforehand, to some extent. But, oh, beloved, they longed for the fullness of these things. And they longed especially to see Christ, as Peter tells us in his first epistle. They longed to see him. And then the genealogy tells us this Christ has come. I want you to notice, friend, as you look at Luke 3. The genealogy begins in perhaps one of the most unlikely places. It begins here not, of course, at the beginning. We didn't encounter it in chapter 1. It begins immediately 
after these words. Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. It begins after the first public declaration of Christ as the son of God. And immediately then Luke writing under inspiration of God's spirit brings to us this list. And this list. It takes us back to Adam. Now why is that? Well, friend, I want you to notice that you have here this idea that there is a comparison between two sons of God. The the sons of God there, of course, refer to sons in different senses. But you can't miss the fact that Luke's Gospel leaves the idea that Christ is the Son of God and makes his genealogy take us back to Adam, who in some sense is the Son of God. What do we have here? Well, friend, we have a comparison between two sons. And even more than that, we have a comparison between two Adams. First of all, I want you to notice that we have a unique son. Everything about this genealogy shows the uniqueness of Christ. Right after those words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, Luke gives us a list of men who could not hear those words based upon their own merit. You see how striking that is? Only Christ, because of his intrinsic worth and truly meritorious righteousness, could hear those words. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But none of the people on the list that's to come could hear those words. And even Adam could only hear those in some sense and only for a time before his fall. Not so Christ. Not so this son. And friend, he calls him here his beloved son. Elsewhere, of course, his only begotten son. The son of his love. Adam was only uh, could be considered a son of God in the sense that he was created by God. But not this son. This Christ is begotten but not made. An uncreated son. One who is loved, by the way, by his father. Not out of an act of grace on the part of the father. But loved by the father because the son deserves his father's love. Because this Son is an infinite person who deserves the infinite love of God. Who alone could say, who alone could make demands upon the love of His Father. Oh friend, this is a Son. This is a Son then who infinitely pleases His Father. And pleases Him absolutely. He alone is delighted in by the Father as eternally good and the wellspring of beauty. And friend, this of course, presents to us the reality then that this Son alone could bear the infinite weight needed for man's redemption. This is the beloved Son. A Son like any other Son in the list that Luke gives us. But it's not just the uniqueness of Christ here that we find. We also find, of course, this comparison, as I've just said, between Christ and Adam. This is a second Adam That could hear the words. This is my beloved son. In whom. I am well pleased. Though Adam could hear it in some sense. As God might delight in the goodness of a creature. Well friend. In this list of 72 names. That span 4,000 years. No such word could be extended. To any. Of the sons of Adam. To none. Oh friend. 
the more you meditate on it, the deeper it gets. What you have here in Luke's Gospel is a very clear idea that he stands alone as a second Adam. He stands alone, stands alone even among the sons of men. Why? Friend, he stands alone because his righteousness is without blemish. It is without spot. His purity is undiminished in any way. I mean, friend, you think about finding the color white. You, you, you have a picture, a, a picture of white, a bright whiteness in front of you. But the reality is you can always find something whiter, something pure, that makes that look dim. Not so the righteousness of Christ. Friend, when you see the purity of Christ's righteousness, nothing, friend, nothing comes close. You look at all of the sons of men, you look at all of even the pious men of the past, nothing comes close to this. Nothing. I mean, friend, you think about the inner core of the sun and the white hot heat that's there. It's incomparable to us. But you see, when the Father looks upon the Son, He sees one in whom He can be infinitely well pleased because He is infinitely pure. The white hot holiness of Christ, friend, is that which the Lord delights in. He delights in a Son who is altogether worthy of His love, altogether righteous. A Son who is altogether unique and unlike the first Adam. And so, beloved, what Luke's genealogy tells us is that in spite of all expectation that we might have, a perfect and a pure son has come in history 2,028 years ago. The son, the second Adam, walked the earth as one in whom the Lord was always well pleased. Friend, esteem every enemy, yours and all others, infinitely stained. Take this whole genealogy, every name that we've read. Friend, every one of them is tainted but his. His only worth remembering. His only worth adoring. But that brings us then, secondly, to Matthew's genealogy. As I said before, we go from a promised seed to a promised son, and particularly to a promised royal son. Matthew's aim is to show the royal line of Christ. And so rightly then, he emphasizes David. Jesus Christ, he says in the first verse, the son of David. Twice he talks about David as king. Then he refers back to Joseph again as the son of David. Verse 20, chapter 1. The focus is on David as he represents the kingship. David as he represents the royal line. And so what we have here, friend, is a very simple idea. And that is that this Christ who's promised to David, this royal son has come. Now, of course, Abraham was promised a seed. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, the blessing of the nations would come through the line of Abraham, we're told. But it's to David particularly that you have this. God says to him, Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. The psalmist relates, The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, He will not turn from it. The fruit of thy body will I sit upon thy throne. There I will make the horn of David a bud. And of course, even the text that we read before from Isaiah. 
And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What Matthew is telling us is that Judah's Shiloh, to whom the scepter belongs, David's son, has come. Centuries of longing for the one to whom the Lord had said, Sit at thy right at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Thy footstool. Centuries of longing for the one to whom the Lord would say, The increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Longing for the one who shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Longing for the one before whom all kings shall fall down and all nations serve. Matthew tells us this one has come. This one has come. Beloved, it's a striking thing. But we have ample evidence that this is very much historical fact. The gospel writers tell us so. But oh beloved, there is so much evidence, even in the text itself, that shows us, and even in our own lives, that this one who would be king of all the earth has come. I want you to think about how James speaks in the Council of Jerusalem. Quoting from the prophets, James says, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. But then note this, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. What James is saying is, this son of David would come, and in the coming of this son, the nations would come to the Lord God. And just for a moment, friend, I want you to go back, if you could, in your mind, to the Old Covenant. There were all these promises throughout the prophets, and even beforehand, that God would one day bring the Gentiles back to the Lord. There there were all these promises that one day the nations would come and seek the law from Jehovah. There There were these promises that the God of Abraham would be adored by the nations. And ask that old covenant man, how did he think it would come about? Of course, an astute man would say, through the Messiah. But I wonder, friend, if you could ask that believer, how challenging is that faith at that time? You see, the promise of the prophets is this. It would not be Marduk, Asherah, Amun, It would not be Baal, Odin, it wouldn't be Jupiter or Zeus that the Gentiles would worship any longer. It would be Jehovah. I say that to you, friend, because I think we often forget. We often forget that the engrafting of the Gentiles is evidence that David's greater son has come. Where are the Marduks, the Baal worshippers today? Where are the Asherah poles and and where are all of those all of those false gods that the nations were addicted to for centuries and millennia? Where are all of our pagan priests that once roamed these hills? Why is it that Jehovah alone, the God of a people who were the smallest of the nations of the earth, is the one that all of the nations worship? It is only because this Son has come, says James. 
That the residue of men actually turned to Jehovah instead of their false gods that their fathers worshipped for centuries and millennia. The very fact, friend, that it's a, it's a historical reality that the Gentiles worship Jehovah is an evidence to the historicity of the coming of Christ. And a shocking one at that. As Christ had been promised to bring the Gentiles in for millennia. And for millennia the nations remained in darkness. Can you imagine an old covenant man walking about us today? Seeing that God had fulfilled precisely what he had promised. In time and tangibly. And we know only through Christ. But it's more than that as we close. Friend, Matthew's list makes several additions that are more than genealogy. I want you to notice in verse 3 and also again in verse 6, you have a reference to this line's darkest moments. First of all, in verse 3, you have Judas beginning Phares and Zerah of Tamar. It's only Phares that's really part of the, of the Messianic line. But he mentions Zerah. Why? To tell us that these both were born of Tamar. Born of Judah's incest. Born out of Judah's sin. And then come down, of course, to verse 6. Jesse begat David the son, and David the king, sorry, David the king, and David the king begat Solomon. And then he notes this of her, that had been the wife of Uriah's. Friend, he mentions here what is not necessary. He tells us here, that it was of Uriah's, or the wife who had been that of Uriah's, that Solomon came. What do we make of that? Well, friend, I think that Calvin is right. I think the purpose here is, the design of God is to show that, he writes, that in establishing his kingdom, nothing depended on human merits because nothing could. What's striking about Judah and what's striking about David is, those were the only two men in this line that were promised specifically to have the scepter or the kingship given to their sons. Judah's promised that the scepter will not depart from him until Shiloh come. And of course, David was promised a king. Isn't it striking that then in this table, the two men who were promised to have a kingly son were told also about their sin? You see, beloved, this teaches us just as Luke's gospel does. That Christ is superior in every way. You see, he's unlike Judah. He's unlike David because he is sinless. The promise was to Judah, but to Judah's greater son. Did it look? David was promised a king, but it always looked to David's greater son. I want you to notice, friend, the prophecies are thus. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, writes Jeremiah. But which David do we have in view? You see, the prophet goes on in Jeremiah 30 to say this, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Ezekiel, I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Again in Ezekiel, and David my servant shall be king over them. And they all shall have one shepherd. 
They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. My servant David shall be their prince forever. What are these prophets saying? David will be their king. But oh friends, the genealogy teaches that this is a greater David. Just as Luke's gospel shows us a greater Adam, this shows us a greater, a righteous David. Matthew is very clear. This son of David is unlike David himself, unlike any that came from David's loins or from Judah. Friend, not Solomon is in view, not David himself, but a better son. A greater than Solomon is here. David was ruddy and of a beautiful countenance. But what Matthew's gospel presents to us is a Christ that is fairer than 10,000 than all the children of men. David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. Christ is the subject of Israel's prayers. David was a man after God's own heart. Christ is the son of his love and who always does those things that please his father. To David, the Syrians brought gifts. To Christ, the isles bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. All nations call him blessed. A greater David is here. But friend, finally as we close, that third point, the promised servant. Both Matthew and Luke highlight the historical fact of the incarnation. There's no question there. The historicity of the gospel accounts are primarily in view. But what's striking is, friend, as you look at this text, as both of these texts, You can't miss the fact, the historical fact, that he was born lowly. Though a son of David, born in a stable. Though, of course, son of the Most High, born of a female slave. Or at least that's how Mary calls herself. And what do you have here, friend? You have, even in the genealogies, this idea Calvin writes, the Son of God might have kept his descent unspotted and pure from every reproach or mark of infamy. But he came into the world to empty himself and to take upon him the form of a servant, to be a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people, and at length to undergo the accursed death of the cross. He therefore did not refuse to admit a stain into his genealogy. Friend, in other words, what you have here is the idea that from his incarnation, Christ's humiliation is a historical fact. Christ's humiliation is a historical fact. The pedigree just continues to mark. It only marks, it only begins, if you will, a life now. A life of humiliation. And how deep is this humiliation, beloved? Despite being infinitely greater than David. Despite being infinitely greater than Adam. Note the difference. Adam was first in a garden paradise. And yet the foxes had holes and the birds of the air had nests. But the Son of Man had not where to lay his head. David longs to drink from Bethlehem's well and men would risk their lives. Rather than have David dehydrate. David's greater son goes to dark Gethsemane, asks his men to pray, and yet they would rather let Christ pray alone than risk their own tiredness. 
Friend, do you see how deep Christ stooped? How low, even, even lower than his lowly fathers? And why? Says the apostle, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye through his poverty might be made rich. Marvel at us, Christian, that 2,028 years ago, heaven's darling walked on the earth, tempted, poor, and in pain. For vile, wretched sinners. In the gospel, you are not called to believe fictions, myths, or legends. You are called to believe historical facts. That's what the genealogies teach us. That's what the entire gospel accounts teach us. And everything then that it predicates of Christ is fact. As sure as you and I sit in this building this morning, as sure as not you and I draw breath this morning, Christ walked on the earth, a son of Abraham, a son of David, the promised heir, emptying himself and taking upon himself the form of a servant. That's historical fact. What does that mean for us? Friend, for those who look to him by faith, for the Christian, this means that the running centuries testify to divine love. Why is there a king? A kingly line preserved. Why is there a son of Adam preserved? But to, do, but to redeem guilty, hell-deserving men. And why did he come in time? Why did he come in history? Why in history did he take upon himself the form of a servant, the son of the Most High? But... For you, O Christian. That's a historical fact. Not an idea, not a romantic notion. That is a historical fact. The incarnate Son of God walked on earth for those who did not deserve Him, were born hating Him, for those who could only be saved by free grace. The exhortation, even from these genealogies, is simple. And believe, adore, live for this Christ who is so long anticipated and who has actually come. Because, beloved, you will see him. This Christ, the Christ of history, face to face one day. It may be that you meet him with tears of love and of joy, rather than in torments that now you are offered freedom from. Come to this Christ, a real Christ, a historical Christ, and a Christ now who offers himself to you. This is the Christ of history. Beloved, it is a historical fact. These are historical facts that show us that this Christ, who is altogether lovely, full of grace and of truth, has come. And he offers himself to us even this morning. Amen. Oh